Isn't it amazing how certain hymns have connections with us emotionally? Maybe it's a memory, maybe it's something that we recall because that song was a part of a special time in our life. I remember the Sunday I chose to walk down the aisle and be baptized. We sang Trust and Obey, and every time we sing that song, it kind of brings back a flood of memories of that particular occasion. My grandmother's favorite hymn was This Is My Father's World, and every time we sing that, I think about her and the legacy of faith she left for our family. And I must confess that the song Brandon just led for us, A Beautiful Life, is one of those songs for me. And the reasons for that are rather odd. Uh, Honestly, as a child, even though it's number 570 in our songbook, it was always number one in the hymnal growing up. I don't know why that was. I used to think it was alphabetical, but it didn't take very long to move through the songbook and to see that wasn't the case. But as a young kid, I remember when my dad's sermons would go really long, looking at the songbook and thinking about that first hymn and reading those lyrics over and over again. And then as a young man wanting to be a bass singer but stuck in that baritone classification, loving that bass line on the chorus and uh, participating in a Bible class at Murray Christian Camp where we would sing that song every day at the beginning of class. And, And thinking about not only that, but as we grow in faith, just what that song captures. Well, tonight I want to talk about far more than the song, but I want us to look at the lyrics of that hymn and to think about two lessons that we learn from that song, but more importantly, lessons that we see reinforced in the Word of God. I think it's encouraging the fact that, as has been mentioned already today, we're encouraged not only to worship God in song, but to teach and admonish one another in song. These lyrics have meaning and purpose. And as we think about the words that we're singing and our worship to God and using to teach and edify one another, I think it's important for us to reflect on what these songs truly communicate and how that message is reinforced or really how that message is foundational to our faith as Christians, not only in the assembly but how we live as disciples of Jesus Christ. You may not know that the author of that song at the age of 42 was in prison. He was on Parchman Farms in southern Mississippi, the Delta. At that time, it was the Mississippi State Pen. He had been serving there for about six years, and although there's some speculation as to why he was there, he was there. While in prison, he wrote 22 hymns. Two of them we sing with some degree of regularity. Beautiful life, but to Canaan's land, I'm on my way. He wrote that song four years earlier in 1914. While spending time there, we know that he spent a lot of time working on the farm, that he got out of prison shortly after he wrote the particular hymn we're talking about tonight, A Beautiful Life, that he, had, he was married and they had one child, but that child tragically died early in life, and uh, Golden himself was killed not long after that. It's interesting to think a lot of people who've looked at this particular hymn wonder if he put his own name in that song, Each Day I'll Do, Not just a deed, but a golden deed. Maybe reflecting on that reality of how he desired for his life to look. And although it started off in a rough way, while spending time reading the Word of God and thinking about what mattered in life, writing those words down. How life's evening sun is sinking low. In a few more days and I must go. To meet the deeds that I there will be no setting sun. How could someone who had had such an experience in life be able to write down these words that have become a part of at least 
my walk of faith as I grew up singing this particular hymn? And how does that then get reinforced in the Word of God? Well, tonight I want to note that there are at least two primary lessons that this reinforces. And I actually think the first one we're going to talk about is the primary point of the song we've just sung together in our worship to God. Really the whole chorus, but throughout this song, there's a reflection on the reality that time is short. And this is language that I think ultimately draws from the parable of the Good Samaritan. Some of our songbooks even put Luke 10, verse 30 through 37 there as a scripture reference to go along with this particular hymn, which I think is certainly appropriate because as we read about what it was Buys were doing when they saw the Samaritan lying there, they were on a journey. They were walking down life's weary road. And so as you read the four or five stanzas of this song, depending upon the hymnal you're looking at, there is this call to action, in part because life is short. There's a repeated nature of this language of each day or passing time or life is being transient. And I think the writer of this song picked up on something that's certainly also evident in Scripture, evident in the law of Moses or in the poetical literature of the Old Testament or in the ministry of Jesus, especially as he talked in Mark 13 or Matthew 24 or Luke 21 about the imminent fall of Jerusalem and what it would be to be a disciple of his in that very difficult time in history. There was always not only a call to action, but a call to action in that particular context Because not only is history always changing, but life is always transient. There's that time stamp, that difference with regard to how life really is rapidly moving forward. And so as the writer of this particular song describes being a disciple, it's as if we're always in a hurry. There's always something to be done. And I think it's interesting, although this song was written now over a hundred years ago, it's still very much applicable with regard to how we always seem to be in a rush. And perhaps one of Satan's greatest excuses that I hear coming out of my mouth from time to time is this idea that I just don't have time. I don't have time. I want to go visit this person. I don't have time. I want to have this Bible study. I don't have time. I want to do this work to admonish or encourage my brother or sister. I want to reach out to this one who's fallen away, and I just don't have time. And I've come to realize this is about me, not about you, that ultimately it's not about not having time, it's about not making the time. Because I put something else in the place of that, I've made something else a greater priority. And I wonder, as Golden was writing this song, as he's sitting in prison, although he's on a work farm and there's certainly plenty of work to be done, as he's reflecting on his life to that point, if he realizes, I'm already 42. There are a lot of things going on in my world and I need to be spending time thinking about how to honor God, how to serve Him, because things are moving along so quickly. Perhaps you'll recognize the number 86,400, the number of seconds in a day. And it's easy, I think, sometimes when we preach on this or think about this particular theme in Scripture to go to those passages in Proverbs that call us to action, that language of going to the ant, you sluggard, and being a hard making sure that we're diligent And all that we do, and that certainly is a theme that I think needs to be proclaimed and reinforced and lived out among disciples of Jesus. We see hymns about this in our hymnal as well. I'll work till Jesus comes. I'm going to wear myself out in service to the Lord. And while those are certainly appropriate emphases, there's more than that going on in this hymn. And more importantly, there's more than that going on in Scripture. 
There's also the theme of stewardship and recognizing that although time is transient, there's something far more important than my calendar. There's, there's something far more important than what it is that I might have prioritized based on the number of hours or minutes or seconds in my particular day. And it's that theme that this hymn also picks up on. It's not only the idea that time is short and that there's just so many hours in a day and that we can't get it all done. It's also the reality that I have a mission. I've been commissioned by Christ for a work. There's something that God desires for me to do, and that is more important than anything I might put on the calendar, on the agenda. Whatever it is that I have in my heart or in my mind that needs to be accomplished, God's mission is my mission. And God's mission is more important than my calendar. God's mission is a way that I can ultimately see my calendar lived out. My calendar can become something that reflects His mission for His glory. But it's important for us to note that that's also something this song recalls. As again and again, the language of helping others who were in need. Of making sure that as we're going down life weary, life's weary road, that we do the very best we can to serve others with each passing day those troubled souls that were good and that were kind and that were pure in our interactions with others. I like to read these songs and think about both realities. It's also ironically present in the other song he's famous for from 1914, the Canaan's land, I'm on my way, reflecting a greater reality while we're living in the flesh, struggling in our existence now, knowing that there's something more important than ourselves. And if anything, this song, A Beautiful Life, is about that's lived not in selfish service to myself, to what I want, to what I see as important in life, but ultimately pouring out my life and my soul and my heart in selflessness because what God desires, I desire. What God wants, I want to be a priority in my life. Now, it's one thing to spend time talking about songs. A great influence in my life, Brother Paul Brown, he used to write a column in the Gospel Advocate every month where he would talk about a hymn had preached in Baton Rouge at one time. He would come down to the church I was serving there every now and then and do a seminar where he would tell the stories of these hymns and it would just help us as we worshiped God to sometimes think about the story in the background of that particular song. But Brother Brown also would always make a point of then connecting that to the themes of Scripture. The hymnal's not inspired, but God's Word is. So I want us to look at these themes, these competing realities. The time is short, but that God's mission is something that ultimately we've got to make a priority and to ask ourselves, is this reflective not only of what Scripture calls us to, but is this really reflective of what my life as a disciple of Jesus Christ is all about? And so tonight I want us to Luke chapter 10. And rather than starting in verse 30, where Jesus begins telling the parable that's so familiar to us, right? I mean, we know the parable of the Good Samaritan. There are all sorts of benevolent institutions that have Good Samaritan or Samaritan in the name of them because even in common culture outside of Christianity, people know about the Good Samaritan. But perhaps we haven't noticed, one, what prompts Jesus to tell this parable. Interestingly, parables are always caused by a question or an observation or something place in that context the parable of the Good Samaritan is no exception. But then I want to ask, as we read this parable with fresh eyes tonight, are these themes of time being short, us being busy, is that something along with the mission God's called us to that we see play out 
and the way Jesus tells the story or the parable of the Good Samaritan. So notice that in Luke chapter 10, Jesus has been talking about discipleship. He's actually gathered together those in this context that he sent out on the limited commission, those 70 disciples who took part in that. And as they returned in verse 17 of Luke chapter 10 with joy, he tells them, he reassures them of God's blessing. And much of this conversation, really down through about verse 24, is about God's promise, God's assurance, and the reality that sometimes disciples of Jesus face opposition or hardship because this world can be hostile to the cause of Christ. So it's in the midst of this discussion, a family discussion about faith and discipleship that we see in verse 25, a lawyer stand up who challenges Jesus. Luke makes it clear by inspiration that he's not just asking a question, he's putting Jesus to the test. He's cross-examining Jesus. And he asks him in verse 25 a good question. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And it's interesting that in responding to this, Jesus then asked the lawyer a couple of rhetorical questions in verse 26. He asked him about his knowledge of Scripture. He asked him what's written in the law. Have you read it? What does it say? And of course, the lawyer gives a great answer when he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5, which is near to the heart of God. Jesus himself would elsewhere say, this is the greatest commandment. You should love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. And the lawyer even says to him, or Jesus responds to him and says in verse 28, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. That's the answer to the question. And that could have been the end of the conversation, and I'm glad it's not. Because as the lawyer continues to cross-examine Jesus, to test Jesus, to try to get to the bottom of what it is Jesus is claiming, to find out if he really is the authority he claims to be, he asks another question in verse 29, which prompts this parable. Who's my neighbor? When he asks Jesus, who is my neighbor? Verse 29. And that's when Jesus replies. And much has been made of the context in which Jesus tells this story. He talks about a traveler who goes down from Jerusalem to Jericho, which would obviously imply that he's on his way away from worship, about a 17-mile journey through ragged terrain, rocky terrain. It actually drops sea level about 4,000 feet in 17 miles. This was a difficult stretch of road. It's possible at least to think that one of the reasons why the priest and the Levite might have avoided this injured man who'd been left for dead there is because sometimes this man could have been left there as a decoy. If I stop and help them, maybe we've had these thoughts before ourselves. If I stop and help them, I hear these horrible stories about there being a decoy and somebody coming out of the woods or seeking an opportunity to make me a victim. We don't know necessarily what might have motivated the thinking of the priest and the Levite, but we're told this was a very dangerous situation where a man had been taken over by robbers They had stripped him, they had beat him, and they went away leaving him half dead. And in verse 31, most hearers of Jesus here would assume that we have the solution. I'm trying to think in antiquity what it would have been like for a priest to have happened upon a scene like this who had been properly trained because we know in the law of Moses there are actually requirements with regard to the priesthood where you would make sure that you serve others. It wasn't just about leaving or leading rather worship it wasn't just about offering sacrifice leviticus chapter 19 for example is a chapter that's filled with instructions or admonitions about this very kind of thing especially in verse 34 
where the priests were told, we're talking about Levites, particularly those who were qualified to serve as priests. I suppose that in principle this could have applied to any God-fearing Jew, but particularly Levites and priests were told that even the strangers, even the foreigners, even those who were not true sons and daughters of Abraham, who resided among them in the wilderness or eventually in the land of Canaan, would be treated as natives. They're told in the law of Moses, Leviticus 19, verse 34, you shall love them as yourself. For you once were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. We don't know a lot about this setting, and of course it's a parable. I don't know that Jesus is reflecting on something here that it actually happened. He's using it as an illustration. But it seems to me that the priest and the Levite both in antiquity would have been viewed as blue lights coming down the road as perhaps that ambulance that's arriving just in time. Help is here. This is exactly who we want to come because here's someone who will have a heart of service. Here's someone who understands what God's desire is. If there's anybody on planet Earth who ought to stop and take the time to help this injured man, it's surely a priest and a Levite. And the language of the hymn we sang together that I was reflecting on earlier There is in verse 31, a priest was going down the road. Verse 32, the Levite was passing on the other side. Verse 33, the Samaritan was also on a journey. I'm not sure we could argue that the Samaritan was any less busy. The key here, I don't believe, is about their intelligence level. Because truthfully, with regard to opportunities to study the law of Moses, it seems that the priest and the Levite had been given more opportunity than the Samaritan had been. And I don't really think it's about opportunity per se, not only intellectual training, but just simply the fact they're busy. It seems to me that the language of verse 33 indicates that the Samaritan was just as busy as the others. So what's going on here? Why did the Samaritan stop? It reminds me of a story I heard about a religious institution where they tried an experiment. They gathered a group of preachers together and they said, okay, guys, we're going to interview you all about the parable of the Good Samaritan. We've set up in another building. They've got the recording equipment there. They put them in the three groups. They told the first group, they've already started. You really need to hurry to get over there to make sure they can record on time. They told the second group, they're going to start any minute now, so make sure you get over there quickly so that you get your place in line and they're able to interview you with regard to the parable of the Good Samaritan. The third group, they said, we're going to start in 10 minutes. Make your way across campus. Well, in between, they put a fellow there in the commons area, this didn't happen at Freed Hardeman, just to make that clear, but in that area, they put a man there who was coughing and who had fallen down, who was having all kinds of difficulties. He was an actor, but they gave him a story. Not one person stopped. Not one. And the reason for it, it seems, in the post-interview of this whole experiment was they were in a hurry. They had an appointment. They were told, we're going to interview you about an important passage in Scripture. Make your way over there. When I read this parable... Although there clearly are connections to the fact he's a Samaritan. We know that in Jesus' setting, going back to about 722 B.C., when the Assyrian Empire conquers those ten northern tribes of Israel, and they intermarry with the Israelites, and they fall into idolatry, and out of that union come the Samaritans. We know that even though we have those great moments like John chapter 4, where Jesus encounters the Samaritan woman and the whole village of Sychar, seemingly responds favorably to the gospel that when the Pharisees really want to insult Jesus, they say, you have a demon and you're a Samaritan. It became a byword. And so clearly in Jesus' setting, there's no doubt that his hearers would have said the most unlikely person 
to stop and help this injured man is a Samaritan. So is the setting important? Absolutely. Is the racial undertone of this important? Yes. I think it's a part of what they would have gathered. I think that's part of what they would have observed. Let's not ignore the time factor. They're all in a hurry. I don't know where they're going. I don't know what they're supposed to be doing. But the fact is, it seems to me that the priest and the Levite, even if they were to fear it's a decoy, even if they were to be concerned about that setting, it wasn't a lack of intelligence. It wasn't a lack of familiarity with what it was God desired for them. It wasn't even, we would presume, a lack of training. What was it? The idea that they don't have enough time. Well, look at the Samaritan. Not only in verse 33 do we learn he's on a journey, but that when he saw him, he made time. Why? Because he felt compassion. He saw him and he felt compassion. And he came to him. And I love the description here. He bandaged up his wounds. He's got his hands dirty in ministry. He poured oil and wine on them. He took them on his own animal. He brought them to an inn and took care of him. And notice that this doesn't necessarily change this Samaritan's plans forever. He's still thinking about the journey. He mentions in verse 35, when I come back, I've still got business to tend to. I've got life to live, but I've pushed pause because I've seen this man and I've had compassion on him. And not only that, he leaves money for the innkeeper, two denarii, a significant amount of money to make sure that however long he's away, this man's taken care of. And he says, when I come back, if you spend more than I've given you, I'll repay you. And so Jesus then asked this open question to the lawyer who previously had been trying to test Jesus. Now Jesus is testing the lawyer. Which of these three men proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And I don't know if this is necessarily true or not, but it is interesting in verse 37 that the lawyer doesn't even use the word Samaritan. Perhaps he couldn't bring himself to. He just says, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus says, go and do the same. Rather than trying to stop and figure out who your neighbor is, recognize that all of these men and women were made in the image of God. All of these people around us, whether they're Christians or not, have been purchased with the blood of Christ. Now, it may be that they've not responded to God's grace and faith, but God desires a relationship with them. How often have we cited from this podium, 1 Timothy 2, 4, God desires that all people everywhere be saved and come to a knowledge of truth. And if God desires that enough to send His only begotten Son, can I take the time? Can I call time out? Can I stop my journey? Can I make it a priority? Not only because I fear that the Lord might return, which is a reality we need to also think about, but because my excuse that I don't have time, I'm talking about me, is really a choice I'm making. I don't have time because I'm not making time. I'm going to make choices that ultimately reflect the priorities in my life with regard to discipleship. And what we see play out in this parable is time being tied to mission. When we talk about mission, it's easy to talk about giving. But giving is not just about financial giving. Giving is not just about intellectual or perhaps even emotional commitment. Giving is about perhaps one of our most precious and guarded investments, time. Am I willing to make the time? I must confess, I'm really good at throwing that excuse out. And it perhaps, at times, is a very legitimate excuse, at least in my own way of thinking, because of work responsibilities, because of family opportunities, 
because of ministry opportunities. But may I not, especially with the lawyer's question in mind, may I not miss out on eternal life because I spent this whole life in too big a hurry to notice that I've got brothers and sisters and perhaps even neighbors and friends who are in need. I don't think Paul puts any kind of qualification on the statement he made in Galatians 6 verse 10. When he said, do good to all people everywhere, especially those of the household of faith. The passage we studied together this morning from James 1, 26 and 27, where James is there describing pure and undefiled religion. I don't see James offering some kind of disclaimer there. Okay, serve everybody about, except the Samaritans. Serve everybody except that particular gender or race or other group that perhaps because of a false stereotype we've made a false assumption about. In the midst of this parable, what we see is the greatest hindrance to the priest and Levite is time. Something that they've chosen. Something that they've made a priority. I'm reminded of Paul's prison epistle to the Philippians and how near the end of that letter as he's offering real encouragement, many of us know what he says in Philippians 4, verse 13, we might that it's one of our favorite verses in all the New Testament. But as Paul writes from prison, expressing gratitude for what these Christians in Philippi had done for him, in many ways, chapter 4 of this letter in particular is all about thanks. Thanksgiving for their gratitude, for their friendship, for their support, for their encouragement. The fact that they made the time to encourage Paul. In verse 5 he says, Let your gentle spirit be made known to all men. There's the ethical imperative. Make sure everyone knows you have a heart for Christ. Make sure that that doesn't just show up in the songs we sing or in the scriptures we memorize or in the assemblies we attend, although all of those things are important. Make sure it also shows up in the service we render. But then notice that it's not just an ethical imperative just out there in the air somewhere that we ought to let our gentleness or our gentle spirit be made known to who? Not just our brothers and sisters, not just our friend group, not just our family, not just the people we get along with, not just the people we might even like or prefer to be around, but let your gentleness, let your gentle spirit be made known to all people. And then notice what he says next. The Lord is near. Now that could be taken in a number of ways. It could be that he's saying he's present He's aware of our choices. He's walking among those seven golden lampstands. He's made that promise in the midst of the Great Commission that, lo, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. But it seems when I read Paul or even Peter in 2 Peter 3 that these apostles lived life with the full expectation that their time was limited, either because one, death might occur, or two, God in Christ might stop history in its tracks. And with the trump of the archangel and the shout of the Lord, history stops. But whatever the perspective, it seems that Paul is motivated by that competing reality. Time is short, but the mission is great. Time is short, but souls are in peril. Time is short, but there are people around us who are hurting, who not only need the gospel, but need our support and our concern and our love. And it's because of that, it's because of that that this same apostle The Apostle Paul is standing on Mars Hill in Athens, refers to the day of the Lord that's coming. And the reason it's being delayed is because God's declaring that all people everywhere repent. That's God's heart. God has a heart for the lost. He has a heart for those who are in Christ, but He has a heart that desires to save all who will bow the knee in faith 
and reverence to the gracious revelation of His Word. And what then do I have an opportunity to do? Each day I'll do a golden deed by helping those who are in need. Why? Not just because I have to. Not just because Christ modeled it. Not just because God commanded it. But because every day I live is an opportunity as life's evening sun sinks low to live in full recognition that were it not for God's gracious initiative, His desire in eternity to save a wretch like me, to reach out by grace to offer an opportunity to someone who had consistently rejected His counsel, who had fallen short of His glory and tried to worship Himself, His own thoughts, His own desires, rather than yielding His will to God's will. He loved us enough to offer us that opportunity so that in the fullness of time He sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, Paul says in Galatians 4.4, so that we would have the opportunity to respond to His grace and faith. And that's not just a response that's a wonderful moment of baptism. It's not just a response in faith that's tied to that repentance, that acknowledgement. We've seen it several times this year. Thanks be to God for that wonderful occasion where a person, a male or a female, makes that decision in faith to turn from sin and confess Jesus as Christ and to come in contact with His blood in the waters of baptism and be raised to walk in a new life. That's really the beginning of that beautiful walk that's being described in the parable of the Good Samaritan and in the hymn, A Beautiful Life. But what this hymn calls us to, and more importantly, what the parable calls us to, is it's not tied to Sundays alone. It's not tied to that response to God's grace and that initial moment of faith alone. It's a walk. It's a lifestyle. It's a recognition. We walk in the light as He's in the light. Yes, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from our sins, 1 John 1, 7. But we have a mission. And that mission is more important than anything else on my priority list. Now, don't mishear it. It doesn't mean I neglect family. It actually means I use the mission to serve my family and lead my family. It doesn't mean that I neglect the church. I use God's mission to serve the church, to be a part of that body as members individually of it. It doesn't mean that I abandon my career, whatever that path might be. I use that calling in Christ Jesus to be whatever it is that I've been equipped to be to His glory. And in every opportunity, whether we're talking about time or money or gifts or whatever it might be, I have the opportunity each day while pressing on that road so quickly, life's a vapor, to recognize that God's mission is bigger than me. I'm so thankful that if I were to die tonight, this congregation would thrive with or without me, with its leaders, with someone who could stand in the pulpit and preach the Word of God. And the same is true in any role we'll ever play in life. It's not that God doesn't value us, but He's raised up others who have gifts and have opportunities. And so in the midst of all of that, rather than thinking more highly of myself than I ought to think, Romans 12, 3, we think soberly, recognizing that God's gifted us and we want to use those gifts to His glory, but time's short. And in the midst of that shortened time, we serve a big God with a great mission who's designed an eternity that we get to spend with Him. Praise be to God for that reality. And may we put to rest the excuse, I don't have time, May we avoid the sin of the Levite and the priest. I'm too busy. And instead make time to not only say what needs to be said or sing what we desire to sing, but to serve, to serve others as God in Christ has first served us. It's a blessing to be a disciple. 
But discipleship is not tied to Sunday alone. It's not tied to the assembly alone. It's something that we do even if no one in the world other than our God knows that we do in service to Him because His mission is our mission. To God be the glory. May we live every day in service to Him. May my rushed life never get in the way of eternal life live for His purpose. And if we've been saying, I don't have the time, let's repent of that and make the time to God's glory as we stand and sing together. Sure is.